Got ordained, I figure I need to buy a blazer, okay? <laughs> if you don't have a Bible, you'll want one. The gentleman in the back will get one to you. You want one in your hand. I want to study the Bible this morning. If you've already got your Bibles, if you'll open up with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 1, so if, once you get to the big Ephesians, you're there. We love to come to church. We love to be told that God loves us, yes? We love to be told things like, we've been chosen before the foundation, yes? We love to be told that God wants to bless us, and he wants to come alongside us, and he wants to cause joy and peace, and and lead us by still waters, and have us lie down in green pastures, yes? We love that, yes? And it's all true. It is absolutely, 100% true. God loves us. God wants us. Us. He pursues us. He saves us. But the question for us this morning is real simple, but it has profound implications. My question for us is why? Why? Why does God love you? Why does God pursue you? Why does God save you? Why does God bring joy and peace? Why does God lead you by still waters? Why does God shepherd? Why does God serve? Why? Why? Because what I think we need to do to have a proper understanding of one of the major themes in the Bible is we have to deconstruct how we answer that question. And so a lot of times, though perhaps accidentally, we've removed the biblical answer to that question and we've replaced it with a whole host of things that generally are involved and focused on us. And so you guys are open to Ephesians. I did this on purpose because I want you to, from memory, help me through Psalm 23. Now, if you grew up in the church, you've probably got this as a magnet on your refrigerator, okay? Okay, at some point you maybe had a bumper sticker or something like that, okay? That had this, it's okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But I want us to, as a group collective, from memory, I want us to work through this passage in Psalm 23 and then we'll get to Ephesians. And it says, the Lord is my, and shepherds are about whom? Who are they about? Who are they for? Sheep, right? Makes sense. It's in the whole title, right? And they're for the sheep, yes? And that's true. My question is why? And it says, I shall not. So at the deepest level, the eternal level, Jesus says, I will satisfy your deepest wants as the shepherd over your Salvation is the author and the finisher of your faith. I will satisfy at the deepest level everything you truly need. And it says, he makes me to lie down in. And, and I, always, I love the makes me, right? You guys down with that, Jesus? It's like, hey, tell you what, uh, two options. Uh, you can lay down or you can lay down, you pick. Right? Like Jesus shows up in Revelation. He's like, tell you what, uh, either everyone can bow to me or you can bow to me. You, the kings, you can either submit to my authority or if you want to, you can submit to my authority. And he gives you options, right? 
And so he says, I'm going to make you lay. So you're either going to be made to lay down or you'll be made to lay down. Those are your options with Jesus. Are you okay with that? I'm okay with that. Okay. And so he says, he leads me beside what? Oh, we love that. Don't, you don't do that with anyone you're not comfortable with, right? Like you just don't like pick some random guy and say, hey, let's go find a stream somewhere. And just lay down. Just relax. Right? No, you, and we like this, right? This is, Jesus is about us. He is a shepherd. He is for us. He's taking us on a nature walk. Right? Probably through Wildwood or something. Right? So he leads me beside still waters. And that's just peace. That's, that's actual peace. It's not happiness. That's peace. And it says, he restores my, God's ultimate purpose is always restoration. It's the mending of that which is broken, okay? And we are fractured from day one. If you don't believe that, come up to me afterwards. We need to talk, okay? Everyone fractured. Our soul is fractured. It's broken. It needs restoration. Jesus says, only I can do that. I'll fill your deepest desires as your shepherd. I will do that. I will bring you peace and joy. And I will restore your soul. And he leads me in the paths of righteousness, and then he gets to why all this is going down. He says, look, I'm going to be your shepherd. I'm, I'm going to cause you to not want. I'm going to make you lie down in green pastures and lead you beside still waters and restore and lead in righteousness. My question is, why is he doing this? Because you're worth it? He says, for his namesake. This is not just one passage that I'm going to blow out and, and, and parse out this entire theology, right? Like that's what cults do. Cults take half of a verse out of context, blow it up, skew a word, and then make the entire theology about it. That's what a cult does. What I want to do is, if some of you were here last week, we, took, we did what? Studied what? The whole Bible, right? Anyone down for like doing that again today? Yes. Right? Because I'm not that bright. And so, and so God says, you know what? You're one of those guys. You're one of the reasons that I just put these themes over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And then you get to the New Testament over and over and over, over and over and over. You see something over and over. You should probably like stop and pay attention, right? We do the opposite. We're like, I keep seeing that. And we just glaze over it. You're looking for the nuance, right? That's how Calvinism and Arminianism, like, what about this word? It's like, stop it. You missed the whole Bible, Right? And we're talking about these massive themes that God infuses every step of the way so you just cannot avoid it. But we read the scripture so fractured, right? Imagine if you picked up like your favorite literary work, right? And they're like, are you starting that book? Nick, someone give me a book, favorite book. Gatsby, right? You pick up Gatsby, you're like, let's do this. And you crack like chapter 12 and you read like three paragraphs and then you go to six, and you read the last half of chapter six and then verse, and then you go to one. Let's see how the whole thing starts. Oh, I'm kind of curious how it ends. And we read the Bible like that. And so all we get is these little snapshots here and there. It's discombobulated. And we miss the fact that God's telling one overarching redemptive story. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible's about what? Jesus. We talked about that last week. Whole thing pointing to Jesus. Genesis to Revelation. From the first word to the last word. The whole thing about one thing. And there's one motive behind it all. And so as I've been filling in for Pastor Rob as he's out doing crazy good kingdom work, I've been, I've been filling in for him and, and sort of parsing together what's known as the five sole. Or the five solas. Plural is sole, so I go because I'm a grammar dork. Five sole. And it's the five theological thrusts of the Protestant Reformation. Okay, and so it starts with sola scriptura, which is the Bible alone is our authority, our highest authority, 
Okay, so scripture alone is our highest authority. Sola fide, which is through faith alone we are saved. Sola gratia, which is by grace we've been saved. Solus Christus is in Christ we've been saved. And it makes sense, the Protestant Reformation, smart guys, way smarter than me. Like, you know what? We should round out the whole thing with soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. Because if you don't understand sola scriptura, you're not going to get the rest of it. But if you don't understand why all of this comes together, you've missed it again. And so what I want to do is, again, just a casual study through the whole Bible. Okay? And we're going to take a look at this motive of God and how that plays out all through scripture. But here's the thing that stings. Here's the thing that stings. On multiple occasions, I just want to prep you now in case you just want to leave. On multiple occasions, I'm going to tell you that God is not ultimately for you. He's not. And that stings, right? The underlying motive behind everything God does is not you. It's not. And so you get all these questions and say, well, well, why did God create us if he knew we were going to sin? There had to be a motive, right? It doesn't seem very responsible that as a holy and just God, he allowed us to sin. Why does he save us? Why does he love us? Why does he pursue us? Is it because we're worth it? Or is it because his glory is worth it? And do you see how we can no longer view our experience, or we can no longer view his glory through our experience? Say, well, this is happening. What are the repercussions for the glory side of it? You actually have to see that his glory is the view by which you see all your experience. In every step of the way. I'll show you how it plays out. Because one of my things as a newly minted pastor, I'm only seven days into this whole thing, but my heart is that on Sunday mornings, on Wednesdays, on Saturday nights with the college students, on Sunday nights, wherever I can fill in, wherever I can be a part of God's ministry and proclaim his word, is that I equip you into the joy that is being in Christ. In Christ. Hundreds of times in the New Testament, that's how Christians are referred to. In Christ. Christian title given twice, okay, but it's very lopsided. They're like, here's your title. I'm going to explain it to you twice. But I want you to know this is something you are in, not simply a title you hold. It's amazing. And so this is something we are in. And when you are in Christ, my job as a a pastor is is to, of course, equip us to be more conformed into the image of Christ. That's the point. That's the purpose of preaching. That's why Jesus preached, to be more like him. And with that, I want to show you that ultimately my heart is for your joy. Notice I did not say happiness. Those are two different things. The world would probably not agree. Happiness is cheap. It's cheap and it can be taken from you in a second. How many of you had that? You've woken up, it's glorious, it's 75 and sunny, it's Thousand Oaks, no traffic on the freeway headed to Camarillo, and then you get a flat tire. Whole day ruined. Whole day. Or maybe you actually make it to work. And you, oh, and you open up Outlook and you get that email and they CC'd your boss when they could have just emailed you, right? You know how I know this? It just happened to me on Friday, okay? And I wake up tomorrow morning, I probably got four of these emails waiting for me and I got to write them back, bro, just take it up with me. You don't need to, you know, CC the CEO. And I get frustrated and I get frustrated and my happiness gets ruined because it's circumstantial as opposed to joy which is and should be eternal. And so ultimately, I'm concerned with your joy, possibly at the expense of your initial happiness. So let's set happiness aside. Because again, it's cheap and it's circumstantial. And it can be stripped from you at any moment. 
And I want to instill in us a, a heart and a desire to see God's motive, which, which creates this longevity, this joy, this eternal understanding that the reason he is doing all of this is actually for himself, not for us. And that's amazing. Right? And so it, it begins to play out like this. We take a look in Ephesians, as I had you open there. Yes, that was just my intro. Okay, so <laughs> verse three says, it's third, it's third service. I can go two and a half hours, Brett said. So blessed, <laughs> blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I got all the pastors together on a Saturday. We spent four hours just to confirm everything means everything. Okay, amazing. We did all that for you. Okay, I'm lying. I'm kidding. It says in the heavenly places. Notice it doesn't say material blessing in the earthly places. Do you know that you have already been given in Christ, already been given Everything there is to have in heaven, it's already yours. Praise God. The question is why? So we read, it says, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, right? We love that. God seems to be really about me. He actually was about me before I was even me. I must be amazed. He knew I was going to be amazing. So he's like, you know what? I got to have some of that before he even becomes a person. He says, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We love that, right? God says, you know what? You're going to be spotless. You're a sinner, but you're going to be spotless in Christ. Right? Why? We continue. Having predestined, don't get caught up on that, just means chosen beforehand. Having predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, six is God's motive. To the praise of the glory of his grace. God says, in Christ, I will give you everything in heaven. I will give you salvation. I will make you clean. I will give you everything. Because it serves my glory, not yours. Not yours. Skip down to verse 11. It says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. We love that, right? On earth we fight for those. Right? We rarely earn them. We just fight for them. Dad, no, you love me enough to put me in that will. Grandpa, no, Grandpa, remember when I was there for you? God says, you have this. You have already obtained this. You didn't, some of you didn't even know that. You're already getting an inheritance. And it says, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ, in Christ, should be to the praise of his glory. That's the motive. I still don't believe you. Okay, we'll just keep reading. 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, your salvation. Oh, now we're talking about me finally. In whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now the Holy Spirit's in on the whole thing. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purpose possession to the praise of his glory. Three times in Ephesians 1 alone, what say we just take a look at the whole Bible, right? This is the recurring motive. This is the recurring reason that God does and allows everything. 
Do you realize that? It's amazing. And we blaze right past glory all the time in the Bible, not realizing that the motive for everything in our life has always been his glory, not even our salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. God is for you. God loves you. God pursues you. God saves you. But God is for you because he's first and foremost about his glory. He loves you because he's first and foremost about his glory. He pursues you because he's first and foremost about his glory. He saves you because he is first and foremost about his glory. I've read the Bible. Sorry to say you didn't make it. You're not in it. Bible, not about you. Not about a single one of us here. It's about God with implications for us. You see that? So, so you crack the Bible and say, I got to learn something about myself. And we do this subtly. We start to write ourselves into the stories in the Bible. We do. Say, well, I'm, I'm kind of going through some suffering right now. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like Job, right? I'm up against an adversary at work and I, and I was victorious in the Lord. I'm sort of like David, right? And some of you are like, well, well, yeah, you missed it. Jesus is the greater Job, not you. Jesus is the greater David, not you. Goliath, it's not your work issue. That's sin and death. That's Satan. To my knowledge, none of us have fought him recently in that regard, right? You haven't. And so we've elevated ourselves to where we write ourselves into God's redemptive framework. Don't get me wrong. It has every implication for you. But its implications for you are because God is passionately and ferociously first and foremost about his glory. Not us. Praise God. And I'm going to show you again. My purpose is to instill a, a more conformed image of Christ into our lives. And so this is ultimately to the betterment of your joy and your trust and your confidence in what God is doing. I'm going to show you how it plays out. But first, I want to do, as we've done before, I just want to do a casual study through the whole Bible. Okay, so here we go. Because some, some of you don't believe me. You're like, well, you got the blazer and everything, right? But I know you shall sell shoes for a living. You haven't been to seminary, okay? You're, you're not really on par with Pastor Rob with the education and the background and the years of ministry. I get it. So tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to have God explain it. Sound good? Amen. Right? So you can get past the whole blazer issue and the yellow shirt and stuff like that. He's wearing yellow, right? Okay. I take Jesus more seriously and my less, myself less seriously every day. Okay, so, so the question then becomes, wait a minute, we're launching into this whole thing and you're telling me that God didn't save me because I'm worth it. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Now we're on track and we can do some work. I am telling you that God did not save you. God does not love you. God does not pursue you. God does not work you into his salvific plan because you're worth it. He loves and pursues and saves you because his glory is worth it. And if you don't understand the foundation upon all this, you're going to get caught up in the mess of the world. And so God lays this out over and over and over and over and over and over. And it starts in Isaiah. Well, it doesn't start there, but we'll kick it off there. Isaiah 43, where God says he created us for his glory. Created. 
us for his glory. That means every waking moment, every step you take, every time you wake up and you stretch and you yawn and you get up and you shower and you brush your teeth, you need to know every bit of every day is purposed first and foremost for God's glory. To God's glory alone, soli Deo Gloria. We were created for his glory. Isaiah 42 and 48 says, God will not give his glory to non-believers. Anyone, anyone. You know why? Because we would mess it up. Look around. You trust these people to shoulder God's glory? Seriously, look around. You do not trust these people to shoulder God's glory. Like, hey, tell you what, you're in charge of God's glory for like a year or so. Are you kidding me? No way. God says, you know what? I'm not even sharing it with the believers in the room. It's not about you. Oh, that's the first time he said it wasn't about me. He warned me about this and I didn't leave. It's not. He says he's ultimately for himself. He's ultimately for his glory and he will not share it with anyone else. Isaiah 49, Jeremiah 13, God called Israel for what? companionship, fellowship, new homies, got bored with the Trinity, anything? No, for his glory. He called Israel for his glory. Ultimately, Israel as God's people in the Old Testament would serve his glory the greatest. You can disagree with it, but you need to know why it happened. And God says it was for my glory that I called Israel. Psalm 106, God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Not because like they were uncomfortable or they deserved better, It was for his glory. Exodus 13, God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to what? Show his glory. Ezekiel 20, God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. 2 Samuel 7, God gave Israel victory, and I'm obviously just paraphrasing these verses. You can look them up later. God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. 1 Samuel 12, God did not cast away people for the glory of his name. So he calls people to himself with the purpose of his glory, and he doesn't shun them for the purpose of his glory. In or out, it's always about his glory. All the time, every day, every second, yes. Not us, him, his glory. First and foremost. And that leads us to greater joy which we'll see, but we have more verses because we're not through the whole Bible yet. So Ezekiel 36, God restored Israel from exile to the glory of his name. Habakkuk 2, great chapter. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like water covers the sea. Anyone been out in the ocean and noticed that there's a lot of water? You ever been, you ever had that shocking, you're like, wow, there's a lot of water out here. It's really wet everywhere, right? Have you ever noticed that? I think Habakkuk was written to a guy like me. God's like, look, you know what? You're not going to get the really deep theological stuff. Tell you what, um, you ever been out in the water? Yeah, I've been out in the water before. It's going to be like that, and then you realize there's a whole bunch of water around, right? And that's like my level. God's like, you're going to be out in the water and realize there's a lot of water around. He's like, you're going to see the glory and realize that it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It permeates everything. I'm a scuba diver too. It's ridiculous. The water's absolutely ridiculous. I only go like 60 feet, 100 tops. It's crazy. It just goes on for thousands. Just water everywhere. He says, that is my glory. We'll see a picture of that again in Revelation. And so you're like, yeah, but that's, that's the Old Testament, Mark. And so we get that God was a bit narcissistic in the Old Testament and he was kind of mean and he killed people and 400 years of silence, went to therapy, got all the issues worked out, sent Jesus to apologize, Right? 
Some of you can't, you deal, old te- he's so mean back then. So glad we're with Jesus. Same God. Same God. All wrath absorbed into Christ on the cross, right? But he didn't just go through therapy and work it out and want to apologize. It wasn't that he was narcissistic and only about himself in the Old Testament and then he sent Jesus to be about us. And so we see in Matthew 15 and 1 Peter 2 that Jesus tells us to do good works. Why? Thank goodness it doesn't stop there. For his glory. And so we see John 7, 18 Jesus sought the glory of the Father in all that he did. Jesus is the perfection of everything, right? The culmination of everything. Perfect missionary, priest, pastor, king, everything, yes? And so Jesus says, everything I do will be to the glory of the Father. You know Jesus was a construction worker for 12, 15 years of his life? Something like that, at least. Carpenter, right? Have you been to Israel? Not much wood, right? Have you ever looked at the ruins? Not wood. What was was Jesus lugging around all day? Stone. Right? That's why he was ripped. Six-pack, obliques, whole deal. Right? Tan in the desert sun, walking around, burning all the calories, working with rocks. Jesus was cut. He was shredded. Probably did CrossFit. Right? <laughs> Jesus, and everything. He said, you know what? As I'm putting those stones, as I'm cracking those stones, as I'm going to church and listening and being discipled and learning and, and being a child to my parent and sitting at the dinner table and listening and, and eating, everything he did was to the glory of the Father. And so what makes you think that we can't do the same? He modeled it, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but did you follow Jesus? Did you hear what he said? That everything he did, yes, even as a construction worker, even as a rock worker, was doing it to the glory of the Father, and you act like you, you don't have Jesus at work. I sell shoes online, for crying out loud, right? Not exactly a Jesus-centric mission, but we're making it. We're making it. Okay? And so... Again, that was John 7. Jesus sought the glory in the Father and all that he did. John 14, Jesus says he answers prayer that God may be glorified, right? He doesn't answer prayer because you need it, though you do. He doesn't just answer prayer because he wants to, though he does. He answers prayer because it glorifies God. That's huge. Not about you. Implications for you, but it's not motivated by you. It's not motivated by me. John 16, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son. The third person of the Trinity, the one that we forget and talk the least about, his entire ministry is glorifying Jesus. That's why people say there's lots of interpretations of the Bible. I don't know which one is right. The one that led you to Jesus was the right one, right? Holy Spirit saw fit the author of the Bible. Therefore, he's fit to interpret the Bible. And the whole purpose and motive is to what? Glorify Jesus. Like, well, I read that passage. I didn't get Jesus. Then that's exactly what you did. You just read it. You didn't allow God to interpret it. Because if God himself interprets it, it will always be to the glory of Jesus. That's why we're not afraid of the whole Bible. We're not afraid of the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. Every title, every act of analogous service, everything is about Christ. And the Holy Spirit's entire ministry is to glorify the Son. John 12 and 17, Jesus endures the final hours of suffering to the glory of God. And so Jesus models for us that, yes. See, Mark, I'm going through some hard times. Look, I get it. I've done the same. But even Jesus, in his suffering, said, this is all about God's glory. How dare we make our suffering about us? How dare we make it about us? It's not. 
It's about God's glory. And, and you begin to wrestle with it. Say, ah, that's towing a line. Does that mean that everything that happens to you is good? No. But does that mean that all things are being worked together for good? Yeah. Right? See how that works? He never said, all things are good and I'm going to make them work together. Right? Because you wouldn't be able to trust that God. You're like, hey, I've seen some stuff that is definitely in the category of not good. Right? He says, no, I'm working all things, all things, again, in the original language, all means all, all things together for those who are called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? His glory. His glory. See? Amen. I love when kids, during my sermon, I love when they squeal. Don't worry about it. I love it. That's another mom that chose life, right? So, I didn't mean to make that more awkward than it should have been. <laughs> Might have. So Jesus endured the final hours of suffering for the glory of God. John 17, Jesus' ultimate aim for us, his ultimate aim for us is what? That we be saved so that we can enjoy heaven with him? No, that we would see and know his glory. Ultimate. That's his ultimate aim for us. That's the process of sanctification. That's everything. Romans 9, unpopular chapter. Unpopular chapter. Romans 9, God raised up Pharaoh to show his power and glorify his name. Vessels are raised up for glorification and vessels are raised up for what? Destruction. And even in destruction and disarray and trials and tribulation, God says all is being worked together for good. And we make our trials about us. We say it's about me. I'm Job. I'm the guy that this story is about. And God says, you don't get it. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. He says, but you need to know that all things are working together for good because this redemptive story ultimately serves my glory the greatest. Why did God create people if he knew they were going to sin and rebel? Why didn't he just end it right there? So you know what? Here's the Garden of Eden. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's lush. It's so great. You don't even have to wear clothes. Just don't eat that apple. And they did. The whole thing should have ended right there. Experiment over. Look, I tried. You guys screwed up. I tried. So why does God tolerate that as holy and just? Because he saw ultimately to the service of his glory, sending his son to redeem the world would serve his glory the greatest. Make sense? Right? Why didn't it end on the cross? Jesus says, it is finished. I would have ducked when he said that. Right? Be like, here it comes. <laughs> right? You would have done the same thing. You're like, God just said it's finished. It's over. Now just waiting. Right? And then Paul says what? Christ's blood on the cross began a restorative work in the world. Have you ever noticed how like when you, when you first get saved, it's like the first time you're excited for revelation. You ever notice that? You weren't saved. You read revelation, you're like, that's a freaky God. Then you get saved, you're like, you know what? Just bring on revelation. This whole thing is a mess. Just finish this all. I can't stand it. It's Monday morning, right? And all of a sudden, you're excited about the end times. You know what? Just, just Jesus, take care of them, right? And we do that. We're all of a sudden excited for revelation, right? He has given us time. Again, Paul says his blood began a restorative work. Ultimately, some of you are like, why doesn't Jesus just come back? Why doesn't he come back? The answer is this. Ultimately, this time of reconciliation where the Bible says Jesus is currently reconciling all things to himself, 
ultimately this time serves his glory greater than if he just said, it is finished, lights out, done. Ultimately, this serves his glory. The question is, are you serving his glory with this time? See how that works? Oh, we're just waiting for Jesus. What are you doing? This is part of the restorative time where Jesus says, I'm reconciling all things to myself. Not only people, but creation itself longs, groans, the Bible says, to be reconciled to God. No more hurricanes, no more sin, no more death, no more aborted babies, nothing. It all is consummated and is perfect when heaven touches earth again in a new Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I'm going to consummate the whole thing. Why doesn't he just do it now? Because ultimately we trust in the sovereignty that this time that we've been allotted serves his purpose the greatest. So the question becomes, what are you doing with the time he's given you? Are you serving the church to his glory? Are you serving your wife and your spouse to his glory? Are you serving your children, your family, your friends, your work, your, with your money to the glory? Because he says, look, this time is about my glory first. Are you? And so we continue. So again, that was John 17. Ultimate aim for us is that we see and enjoy his glory. Romans 9, raised up the Pharaoh to show his power and the glory of his name. Romans 3, God gave his son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness. Pastor Rob alluded to to David, or not alluded to, he, he exhorted us on David last week, right? David sleeps with another man's wife and it doesn't stop there. Has him murdered. Has him murdered. And then the Bible calls him David, a man after the Lord's own heart. How does that work? God kills the guy that tries to stop the Ark of the Covenant, the priest, from falling, and then says, you know what, David, we're cool. How does that work? How is that a just and holy God? How does God punish some in the Old Testament under active wrath and not others? Because Jesus shows up and says, you know what? I'm here and it's taken care of. He vindicates sins, past, present, future. I don't care where you came from this morning. I genuinely don't. You know why? Because Jesus doesn't either. He doesn't care what's in your past. He doesn't care what you're dealing with right now or what you're gonna deal with. He says, we're all gonna struggle. He says, in me, you've been vindicated for all of that because ultimately it serves God's glory First, not because you're worth it, but because he is worth it. And so in Romans 11, it says, everything that happens will redound or contribute. Everything that happens will contribute to the glory of God. First Corinthians 10, God instructs us to do everything what? That feels good, that sounds right, that was told to us by a pastor or a friend or a family member? No, do everything to the glory of God. Have you tried implementing this? If you like woke up on Monday, you're like, you know what? I'm going to stretch to the glory of God this morning. I'm going to uh, have breakfast to the glory of God this morning. I'm going to brush my teeth to the glory of God this morning. Have you thought about that? That's a big charge. Everything. Really? Everything? Yeah. Who did everything to the glory of God? Jesus, right? So you don't have an excuse. Well, no one's ever done that, so I, I clearly I can't. Everything. We talked about flavor last week, right? This is the mind blow. Every time I eat something, I'm like, Jesus created that flavor. Like now the chef did. No, the chef took two flavors that were created by Jesus, put them together to make a derivative flavor that Jesus knew would exist anyways. Jesus created all things through him and for him. All things were created that are in heaven and on earth. That includes flavor. Every time you eat, you're just like, bam, glory to God. Mm. Right? If you're like me, Genesis 126, every time you carve that steak, you're like dominion over cattle. Love it. Right? <laughs> a little salt, pop that flavor all to the glory of God. 
right? Everything, driving on the freeway. Oh, don't talk about that. Driving to the freeway to the glory of God, right? I remember coming back from Iraq after being overseas with the Marine Corps and being so excited to sit on the 405 in traffic. I was carpooling from Camp Pendleton. I used to be like, oh, roll down the window, like the sweet smell of the Sepulveda Pass. Just dead stop. Just, ah. you know why I was excited? I sat in the traffic for like two hours. Nothing blew up. That's what was amazing. You guys complain about traffic. Stop it. There's no bombs, okay, right? I was excited there was traffic and no bombs, okay? Like, traffic's terrible in LA. You should see Fallujah, okay? Terrible. But just in traffic, listening to worship music, I had such good perspective because I had come so close to death. And I saw his glory everywhere, the mountains. I'm from Illinois, right? Like, if you can't see God out here, you got something wrong, right? Like, let's go to our friend's house, 14, 15 miles, you know, cornfields, right? Just who, someone else from Chicago around here. We've got more Illinois people. You know what I'm talking about. It's just, it's just flat. He's there, don't get me wrong, but come on. What excuse do you have? Mountains and beach and snow and surf and Santa Barbara, right? Like, clearly God's playing around, right? Everywhere, everywhere to the glory of God. Everything exudes him, even the cornfields, okay? Everything exudes him. And so we're to do everything to the glory of God. 1 Peter 4 says, God says to serve in a way that glorifies him, right? First question is, are you even serving? Oh, don't, oh, don't, oh, don't do this. I, I think there's donuts and coffee. I think everything's taken care of, right? I challenged the college group last night too. They take a look at the church in Ephesus. We started Revelation 2. Jesus has all these commendations, all these good things to say about the church at Ephesus. And we're like, okay, tell us what they did wrong. How about we just stop at what they did well? They worked like crazy, like, well, well, let's just, let's just we got to be loving because the church at Ephesus wasn't loving. We look at what they were doing wrong and say, that's what we got to fix. Were you, are we even doing what they did right? Do we work? Do we labor to the glory of God? Are we doctrinally pure? Are you guys helping? Are you helping in the ch- children's ministry? Scrubbing toilets, coffee, donuts. Same people over and over and over and over. So if you're like, oh, I'll serve the glory of God. You're not even serving half the time. How are you going to do it to the glory of God? I'm really busy. Don't even play that card with me. I got two kids under the age of four. Okay, I got three jobs, fitness instructor at night, full-time online marketer, preaching when I can, college ministry. You want to play the busy card? I'll go hook and jab with you all day long. Okay, you're not too busy. You're not. God will bend the time-space continuum. I've seen him do it. And he'll give you the energy to do it. Paul says, I was empowered by the grace of God to work harder than anyone. I'm always tired. Ask God to fix it. I don't feel like serving. Ask God to fix it. He will. He'll change your emotions. That's offensive. Those emotions are mine. No, they're not. They're subject to Christ. Just ask for new ones. That's not, oh, it is biblical. Okay? Give you a new heart, new desires, new spirit, the whole thing. All right? So again, Second Thessalonians, so if that was First Peter 4, God says to serve in a way that glorifies him, if you're serving, of course. Second Thessalonians 1, Jesus is coming back. Why? Because you're worth it? Because he needs you? Needs more friends? Lonely in heaven? Doesn't have enough? To the glory of God, he's coming back, right? I love this too, because we're kicking off Revelation, and, and Jason got it right. I, I, I got to believe, like, Revelation's the manliest book there is, right? Like, oh, oh, Jesus shows up. It's, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. To the glory, the glory of God, it says in Revelation 21, the glory of God will replace the sun. Jesus shows up, he's like, hey, hey, you know that big gas ball thing you guys have been floating around for a couple thousand years? You don't need that anymore, I'm here. And the glory of God resounds over, and it illuminates 
everything. You know how Revelation kicks off? Like he's talking to John, right? His best friend. John was Jesus' best friend. I mean that sincerely. He's the one that he handed his mother over to on the cross. They were possibly cousins. Best friend. John is exiled. He's on the island of Patmos. Jesus shows up to reveal himself and to be revealed. He speaks to John. John hears him first. Believers often have to hear him first before we can see him. And so he hears him and he turns around. And the first chapter is him just trying to explain God And before we get to the letters of the church, he's seen the glory of Jesus. You know what it says? He was on the (laughs) ground. It says he was on the ground as dead in front of the glory of Jesus. Like we we don't even get on our knees. I I got a lot of criticisms for the Catholic church, but they get on their knees every service. We don't, right? I don't. And and John is as dead on the floor in front of the glory of Jesus. As dead. Dude's like a hundred years old. You've never seen grandpa move like that. Dude just, bam! For the college ministry, I just dropped, all right? Threw my back out the whole bit, right? I'm just kidding. Sort of, right? On the floor, dead. Because he just got a tiny glimpse of the glory that is going to permeate everything and sustain everything and bring life to everything and illuminate everything just as the motive of his glory is illuminated in all of scripture. As we've seen. And so when he comes back, it's to his glory and his glory will replace the sun. And so again, Genesis to Revelation the motive behind everything that God does over and over. These are just the verses that I could put on paper before midnight, right? I taught this again at the beginning of the year and I was adding more. Next time I teach it, it'll probably be 50 verses. I got into that whole thing where I'm pulling out all the glory verses last night. I'm like, you know what? I just got to shut the laptop down and go to sleep. It's everywhere. Genesis to Revelation, the motive behind God doing and allowing everything by his sovereignty is first and foremost his glory. He loves you for the sake of his glory. He saves you for the sake of his glory. He pursues you for the sake of his glory. He allows trials and tribulations, ouch, to the the praise of his glorious Grace, And so we write ourselves into the Bible, as I said. We, we, we think that we're Job and that we're David and that we're Nehemiah and we're not. Jesus says, that is me and you're trying to share glory, which I will give to no one. I am for you because I am first and foremost for my glory. I love you because I am first and foremost for my glory. And allowing Adam and Eve to sin and allowing us to run and needing Jesus on the cross and allowing this restorative time right now. And ultimately in the consummation when Jesus comes back, he says, this is the story that would to the greatest degree display my glory. And let me give you two reasons why an understanding and unpacking of the fact that God is first and foremost about himself brings us Greater joy, not less. Brings us greater trust, not less. Brings us greater confidence, not less. These aren't mind-boggling theological concepts. The first one is this. Because God is ultimately for his glory, first and foremost for his glory, you need to know that he does not care for your begrudging submission. 
because he is first and foremost for his glory, he wants no part of your begrudging submission. He doesn't. And so we look back on the law and we think, you know, oh, the law and the Pharisees and the religious hypocrites and those guys were jerks. And the law was, it was what they took the law to be, not what it was intended to be. The law was never intended to be kept by us. Did you know that? You act like, like God gave it to us, being like, I, th- I think there's a few that could get it 100% of the time. He knew we would not be able to keep the law. And in that, Every time we failed to keep the law, we would know that we're to look forward to the one that fulfills the law. And so every sin and every fracture and every storm and every death and everything in life, every trial, every tribulation is a reminder that we are fractured, that we are incomplete, and we look forward to him who completes all. Do you see that? And think about David. David wrote in the Old Testament. He stayed awake at night delighting in what? The law of the Lord. How does that work? Right? Have you, have you read Leviticus? Doesn't seem fun. I praise God every day I don't live in the Old Testament, right? No bacon, none of that, right? But you're just, you're just delighting in the law of the Lord? How does that work? Just meditate because he understood what the law was about. That it was the coming of the Messiah. It was all point forward. It wasn't something he had to do. It was something he got to do. And so it's not about this begrudging submission. And parents understand this. What, what, it's not a perfect parallel, but what glorifies, if you will, your parenting greater? My little boy, Ethan, don't run into the street. I want to run into the street, but I won't because you said so. Is that, is that glory? Is that just the glory of my parenting? I can't stand you. I'm not going to run into it because you said, but I don't I want to. I still want to play. It looks fun. Ethan, do not run into the street. Okay, dad. Okay. I, I don't get it. It looks fun. Cars are whizzing. I think I could race them. I don't really get it. He's fast, right? He's fast. Little blonde-headed blur running around. You've seen him. Following Marty, looking for, right? Looking for his, his next Marty pop. You've seen him, right? One hanging out, throwing the sticks, you know. He's running around, right? Does that, does that, is that, is that, is that a repercussion of good parenting? Right? He's not perfect. We're not perfect by any means. But when he just simply understands that there are things he doesn't understand, but ultimately I am for him because I want to protect him. And so God sets up marriage, even before the law, by the way, okay, like, oh, marriage is all about these Old Testament law. Actually, it was established before the law, so it was perfect. Old Testament law, New Testament, Jesus' words revert all the way back to Genesis. He says, look, this is what marriage is. It's going to be tough. You're going to have generally two people that hate you for it, religious people and politicians. They're not going to like that and because the other people, just, no, they don't care. And he says, look, this is what marriage is. One man, one woman, they will come together, leave their parents, they will cleave together, become one. That's, that's marriage. Set it up. God ushers Eve down. It's the wedding processional. The whole thing happened before the law even was invented. He says, look, this is the parameters and, and it's going to be tough in the times in which you live. You're going to struggle and people are going to put, you know, they're going to put labels on you for such. But he says, ultimately, you need to know that that's me protecting you. That is me declaring part of my order and my nature and that will ultimately lead to your joy. Because this is, I mean, it, it makes sense. Like, like God authored it. 
right? You know that? Like, they're going to have this whole tussle in Washington, all this nonsense, right? They're going to redefine marriage? Stop it. You can't redefine that which you didn't author. They're, like, they're redefining all. No, they're not. They're just coming up with frivolous laws. They're not redefining anything. God authored it. He maintains it. He sustains it. It'll be glorified to him alone. And so he sets up this marriage picture. He sets it up with sex and money and family and friendship and service and church. He says, look, I give you the law so that you will know my order, but I want you to delight in that because I'm protecting you. I'm ultimately for your joy because I'm first and foremost about my glory. And when you enjoy me and you delight in the law and the commandments of me, you will display my glory. That's the point. So he's not after your begrudging submission. He's not up after you to just muster up enough courage to follow God and to follow his laws. Right? It was the law, the law. The law was meant to bring delight as it did with David. He was excited. He's like, God revealed himself. And sometimes I don't even get it, but man, it's a God that loves me enough to tell me how things are. And he doesn't want me to get in the way of myself. You know you're your ultimate enemy, right? Not a single person has lied to you as much as you've lied to yourself. Not a single person has broken as many promises to you as you've broken to yourself. True? True, you are the foremost obstacle to God's motive. You need to know that. No one else, no preacher, no teacher, no small group, no coworker, you, okay? And you need to know again that God is for his own glory and therefore could care less about your begrudging submission. He wants you to delight in the law because you understand that it's for his glory ultimately, Second is that because God is ultimately for his glory, that means, as I warned you, it's not about you. It's not about you. Every conflict in your life is, is generally because you believe something is about you. When you're in line at Best Buy and it's not taking long enough, that's because you assume you were guaranteed a faster slot through that line. Traffic and work and marriage and family. Pastor Rob says the best. You want to ruin a marriage? Just make it about you. We know this. I've been married seven years. We know this already. It takes about two days to figure that one out. <laughs> if you're slow like me, right? You want to ruin your career? Make it about you. You want to ruin the church? Please make it about you. Seriously. You want to ruin this church? Go, go ask to serve and then make that service all about you. See how fast that plunders. It's not actually like a challenge. Don't do that, right? <laughs> I'll do it. All right, don't. You want to ruin something? Make it about you, not God's glory. And I, I stole this from a pastor, but the way that we, I stole this from Pastor Matt Chandler, because he says, what's this example of living in this freedom and the understanding of the law? And, and you got you to gotta, you gotta look to Paul. Paul got it, right? Job, yeah, to be sure. No matter what you did, Paul was about God's glory. And this is just epic. I just wrote it down. I didn't want to get it wrong. He had a hard life too, like hard imprisoned, shipwrecked, not once, not twice, not three times, right? Three times. And then one time he made it to shore and what happened? Gets bit by a snake, right? Like, okay, God, funny, but knock it off, right? And no matter what they did, shipwrecked three times, imprisoned, beaten, left for dead, he persevered to the glory. And so people would say, you know what? We'll kill you. And he'd say, okay, to die is gain. All right, fine, we'll leave you alone. He's like, to live is Christ. It's like, fine, we're going to kick you through the streets like a soccer ball. He's like, you know what? The sufferings of the present are not to be compared to the future glory. 
And everything he did, you know what? We'll throw you in prison. He's like, all right, just give me a hymn. No, we'll sing songs. I'm going to convert all your guards. <laughs> Paul's down for whatever. He's down. He mangled, beaten, everything. Just, he's like, you know what? Cool. Let's go for it. Dead, alive. I don't care. Prison. Let's do this. Let's rock and roll. And he would do it. All why? Because it was about his circumstance, about his suffering? No. It was about the glory of God alone. And so we, we, we scoot over to Ephesians 2 and it says this. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And he says, so, so Mark, I get all that. It's all about God's glory. But you have to concede one point. You have to concede that I still mustered up the necessary energy to have faith. And God's like, you just read it. I gave that to you as a gift. So your mustering up of this faith is just declared to be a gift. Like, hey, mom, I mustered enough of the faith to hold up this present you just gave me. Right? Like, like that's what you're going to stand on. God says, look, it's all about my glory. It's always been about my glory. The reason I love you is my glory. The reason I pursue you is about my glory. The reason I have saved you, the reason you have faith in me is because I'm ultimately and passionately and furiously obsessed with my own glory. And so we are to be passionately in pursuit of his glory in everything we do. That's God's motive. What makes you think you can supplant it with your own? And so in the ultimate way that he displays his glory, he says, you've rebelled from me, you have fallen, you are fractured, you are sinful, and I am gonna send my son to be strung up on a tree by religious people and murdered and spit upon and to be put to death. Why would God do that? Because ultimately God has been about his glory but it didn't end on the cross we're still here we don't know how for for how long but when you exit the building today you need to know that whether or not you agree with it god has one underlying motive and one underlying purpose which is that he is first and foremost about his glory and you are to be as well and not because we're worth it God is not about his glory because we are worth it. God is about his glory because he is worth it. He says, I am. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this would be a refreshing study, that this would be a refreshing time to perhaps take a look at where we may accidentally have been putting ourselves up where your glory belonged. We thank you that from creation to the cross to the consummation, your motive has not been us. You are for us because you are first and foremost for your glory. And in that, you model how we are to be. That every step of the way, as Jesus proclaimed, we are to be first and foremost about your glory. And in our pain and our suffering, though tough they may be, even those are things and events 
and circumstances that are being worked together for good for those who are calling to your purpose. And I pray that everyone here now, myself included, has a restored vision, a restored understanding of what your purpose is. And that's the the glorifying of the God that loves, of the God that saves, of the God that pursues, of the God that blesses his people. Because ultimately, it serves your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.